welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for October 2017. I am writer, hyphen, scary Halloween name, which is only relevant if you listen to this within the first 24 hours of its release. Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Writer, hyphen, film critic, hyphen, possibly simulated Rochelle Semenovich. And with us as our special guest this month, actually in the room with us, is... It's me, Adam Elliott. Hello, Lee. Hello, Rochelle. Hello, Adam. Hello. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> Pleasure. It's great to have you here. Oh, well, look, I, I love um, I love these sorts of things because normally I do interviews and they're like, you know, five minutes, ten minutes, and we get it. An hour? Is that right? Oh, we're never letting you go. Oh, great. Yeah, this, this will go on forever. Uh, but we're going to start, because uh, this is the October episode, we're going to start looking at a few of the films of October, some of the new releases, starting with... Yes, the first film this month is a biggie. It's Blade Runner 2049. It's set 30 years after the events of Ridley Scott's 1982 dystopian cult classic and it's directed by Denis Villeneuve. It's the story of Ryan Gosling as a new Blade Runner who unearths a dangerous secret that leads him on a quest to find Harrison Ford's Rick Deckard who's been missing for 30 years. Lee, is Blade Runner 2049 a replicant with a soul? <laughs> oh, nice one. Uh, I don't think it's a replicant. I think it is It is a child in that it's completely its own thing, but you can see the identifying features. Mm-hmm. It is a natural child, which is perhaps a plot line in the film. I think, I think it is an extremely clever sequel. Uh, there are two ways this could have gone. Uh, one way would have been to tell essentially the same story with a few cosmetic differences. Uh, you have a, a younger Blade Runner hunting down another four replicants with some key callbacks to the original film uh, based on whichever actors are willing to return. The other way to go would be to tell such a different story that it completely misses the point of the original, either by turning the film into an action reboot or discarding, say, the examination of what it means to be human in favour of a film about the hubris of technology and caste systems. 2049 does neither of those things, and it, it's it's such a deft follow-on from the original. I honestly think it should be taught in film school. Like, this is how you make a sequel. Like, the, the potentially clumsy twists are anticipated and avoided, uh, the film remains, I think, a step ahead of the audience at every turn because there are some plot twists we're expecting, some obvious ones that, that that never happen. You know, our expectations are subverted. Like, even superficially, there's no attempt to repeat the off-world colony ad. There's no, you know, superficial, awkward winking at the audience. Um, nor do they photocopy the, the building geisha. There is a gigantic holographic ad for an AI computer girlfriend, but it, it's different enough and so profoundly important for the moment in which it appears on screen that I almost applauded. Um, I mean, removing this film from the shackles of its status as a sequel, it, it, it's a great standalone work. It looks unbelievable. Yeah, I am just, I'm truly floored that they pulled it off. I, I think it's amazing. Yeah, it's really beautiful and immersive and... Um, it creates such a convincing world and it's got these echoes from the first one like the plastic raincoat and even the echoes in the score um Hans Zimmer's score sort of has these sort of callbacks to the um original score by Vangelis I think 
Yeah, what about you, Adam? You've seen this film, I think. Well, yeah, look, I, I, I remember watching the first Blade Runner uh, when I was studying art and our art teacher used to freeze frame um, scenes from the film and we'd have uh, two minutes to quickly draw that image. <laughs> and so I, th- that film's burnt into my brain because we actually we drew all these stills from it. Uh, so going to see it the other day... You know, I was a bit sort of anxious and uh, I didn't know it was going to be three hours long. Um, <laughs> I, re- I re-watched the director's cut, Ridley's uh, director's cut, and I was pleasantly surprised. And I I agree, it, it seemed to do a really good job as a sequel. I know, look, they've had plenty of time to, to get it right. Um, okay, yes, it was a bit long, but, I mean, even Harrison's Ford... Ford's appearance wasn't it wasn't grating. He was very watchable. I don't know how he ended up out in the the, the va- wastelands of Las Vegas. Was it? Was that where they? Was yeah, in, yeah. The and all that whiskey he had. I, I, I love Harrison Ford in this. Although he really is playing Harrison Ford, he's not playing Deckard so much as he's kind of got the generic Harrison Ford persona that he brings out now. I mean, he's pretty interchangeable at the moment, isn't he? He can mm. almost turn up as Han Solo in any other film and we'd sort of forget, you know, he's just got that sort of... We just like He's almost turning into Sean Connery where he can just pretty much do anything in his old age and we'll love him for it, you know? Or like Father Like Son. Yeah, oh, yeah. yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I think he's fine in this film, but maybe it was just the plotting, but when he appears, I started to lose a little bit of interest in this story because it it sort of moved from being the story of Kay played by Ryan Gosling and that sort of um, mystery that it sets up about him and his identity and then it moves to being Harrison Ford's story a bit and it, it sort of became a film that wasn't quite as enchanting to me at that point. Mm. Yeah, I found too that when it got to that, that sort of climactic moment of the spaceship on the, in, in the dark on the edge of the beach or water and yeah. I don't want to spoil it but Harrison sort of up to his neck in water it suddenly became a, an adventure you know like a, it became just like every other sort of sci-fi film at mm. that point whereas the two hours two and a half hours leading up to that was very atmospheric mm. and I mean the, the cinematography was stunning mm. and um I also like, too, that a friend of mine works at Weta and he told me that a lot of those buildings were actually miniature buildings that they built. And, of course, there was tons of CGI, but a lot of that was done uh, the old-fashioned way. And maybe that was a deliberate thing to make it link better to the earlier film. Mm. So this film, um, this Blade Runner, is directed by Denis Villeneuve, who has done um, other sci-fi films like Arrival, which... I think he's got a much more sort of delicate and nuanced sensibility than Ridley Scott, don't you? Yeah, certainly these days, yeah. Modern modern Ridley Scott, mm, for sure, mm. yeah. Yeah, and I think one of the things that I really enjoyed about this film, even though it's been criticised, um, is the, the relationship between um, the Ryan Gosling character, who is a replicant, and his um, virtual lover-slash-sex-slave um Slash, um, oh, what would you call her? Was she uh, virtual girlfriend? Maybe his virtual girlfriend. Yeah. Let's call her that. And she's named Joy, and she's played by Anna de Amis, and she's just gorgeous and delightful. Mm. And the love story between them feels really convincing. It feels like, I mean, that is one of the questions the film sets up: is is you know, 
Is it possible for an artificially um, created intelligent being to feel love? Mm. Yeah, I, I think that's... Like, I, I've heard some of the criticisms and I agree with some of them, but I think there is a very conscious and very delicate handling of what is... I mean, okay, I always think back to uh, particularly when DVDs came out and then Blu-rays and so on, and it, somebody said, and this, is, this has always stuck with me, that technology is generally led by the porn industry. So if it's an argument between Blu-ray and HD DVD, it will be won by whoever porn chooses, and <laughs> they went with Blu-ray. Um, and so, you know, it's basically technologies are led by sex and sexual desire, and but also you know, a, a desire for companionship. And, you know, there are a startling number of news stories about sex robots coming out these days. And and I, I think that's definitely where uh, Blade Runner, the new Blade Runner, is taking its cues from. And the ways in which they explore that from the getting that remote, that bit of technology that allows her to be remote, uh, and sort of that, well, the joy at being able to make, sort of upgrade her... And then the whole thing with her going in sync with the... I love that scene. Oh, my God. Mm. I thought it was so... The way the technology kind of worked, but kind of glitched as well. Yeah, those little glitches. It felt kind of convincing, didn't it? It reminded me of that Joaquin Phoenix film, um, Her. 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 (laughs) (laughs) From a few years ago, too. And that's, you know, it's all happening now, as you said. It's being led by the porn industry. It's funny, I, I actually found Ryan Gosling's performance more convincing with this robot person than the film he was in last year what was that one um the la la land la la land (laughs) (laughs) so so yes what does that say about ryan gosling uh he's he's much better with a robot than he is with a real person someone's done a a trailer for la la land 2049 which is uh, (laughs) quite good I'll, i'll put a link to that up but um you know there's no i was really worried it was going to be for um, replicants being hunted down the mm. way the first one was when they cast Dave Bautista Dave, Dave oh, Bautista the uh, one at the start who's the farmer yeah from yeah. Guardians of the Galaxy mm. I thought okay he's the new uh, not Leon I can't remember Rutger Hauer you know and I thought okay so so I can see where they're going with this Roy but, Batty yeah Roy Batty thank you And but of course that's not what they're they're doing you know it feels like the same investigative beats but it's a different story it is so it is so clever i'm just yeah i'm really impressed with every aspect of it Mm. and robin wright plays um ryan gosling's boss Mm. police boss in this and she's just i just love seeing her in these strong professional roles that she's doing at the moment um she's she's great and then there's that other female character um whose name is love and who she played by sylvia herks I think yeah. it is. And she's kind of the underling of um, Jared, Jared Leto's industrialist who's trying to find the secret of, you know, um, replicants who can replicate. Yeah. Um, yeah, and he, I think, is the weak link in this film. Absolutely. I, when he came on, I just disengaged. I, I think uh, he was overacting or something. There's something about him I just... Yet I love, you know, love him in other films, but in this one he just seemed miscast. Yeah. Well, I don't think he was really given that much to do. No, he wasn't in it much, was he? And he had those little balls floating around his head the whole time, which I never (laughs) thought. No, that's just him. He brings that onto set. That wasn't meant to be in the film. (laughs) 
That's just Jared Leto. <laughs> I tell you what, I mean, for those who haven't done a spoiler, but uh, Elvis is also in the film too. Yes. I mean, that was one of my favourite scenes in, in, <laughs> that in was Las Vegas. Fantastic. That All whole those holograms, yeah. Oh, that was that was really well made. I was I was sort of giggling as I was watching this scene, going, "This is a future classic." I'm watching a future classic scene right now. That's great. I was talking to some of my nieces and nephews the other day and, and asked them what they thought of it. They'd never seen the first Blade Runner and they were bored. They said oh. it just went too slow and too long for them. So. Well, even the original film wasn't a hit when it first came out. A lot of people, including myself, had to see that film a few times to really appreciate its, um, its genius. So maybe this film's going to be a bit of a sleeper hit too. Sure, sure. Yeah. That, that's continuing the tradition. I like that tradition of they're all flops and then get appreciated 30 years later. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of bright neon colour palettes, uh, that brings us to the third film in the Thor series, which is the 17th film in the Marvel franchise, the two and a half film in the Hulk saga, and the 73rd film in the Jeff Goldblum cinematic universe. Uh, Thor Ragnarok, uh, Ragnarok I think, uh, sees the God of Thunder trying to prevent an apocalypse brought on by his long-lost sister, Hela, the God of Death. Look, I don't need to give any more plot at this point. We know we know the score. We've seen the Thor films. We've seen the Marvel films. We know there's going to be a a you know a big climactic fight. We know there's a struggle to save the world. Ragnarok is currently the best reviewed Marvel film. It's going it's going over better than any of the films, and I think that a lot of that is to do. In fact, all of it's to do with the humor. I would say. Possibly with the exception of the first Star Wars, which, you know, is a Western, uh, no film has made me question the conventions of genre as much of this film because I would classify it as a comedy. You know, Guardians of the Galaxy was funny. Uh, Spider-Man Homecoming was funny. This is a comedy. Everything seems geared towards the comedic. And I feel like this is about as close as we're going to see to a superhero film directed by Zucker Abraham Zucker. Like... It is an actual comedy, and that's kind of blowing my mind a little bit. I think it's, uh, I think it's a really brave choice, and I think it's, uh, it's paid off. Yeah, well, maybe that's why I enjoyed it, because in general, I find these kind of big, silly superhero films are just not my cup of tea. I can't be bothered with them. I try and avoid them unless I'm made to see them, like you've made me see this one. <laughs> um, I just can't help seeing these famous actors and imagining them thudding around in front of a green screen green while they're making it it just Mm. doesn't feel like I'm just obviously not the audience for these kind of films but this one you know I went and I saw it and I enjoyed it I laughed I enjoyed seeing um Kate Blanchett sort of slithering around like a you know evil beetle in her black and green spandex and I enjoyed seeing all the muscles and the action and, you know, the jokes. And Mark Ruffalo playing um, Bruce Banner mm. slash the Hulk, I think, was the highlight for me. He was just... He, he just brought such a neurotic sort of comedic element to this film. Yeah. yeah it was funny. Yeah. I, I've yet to see, but I, I'm, I agree with you, Rochelle. It takes a lot to get me to the cinema to see a superhero film. And, um, I'm, you know, of course I love the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy, but... I think it, for me, it's just so many of them are formulaic, and I'm so relieved that you both enjoyed it because I will now definitely see it. Because if it was funny, then of course I'd love to see it. And and the other reason I want to see it too, of course, is the uh, New Zealand director Taika Waititi. Yes, yeah. he made all these wonderful New Zealand features, 
And obviously that has worked because he's brought a lot of humour to the film. So I will definitely go and and see that next week. Excellent. He's the MVP of this. Uh, Fun fact, I actually tried getting him on the show back in early 2015. I don't think I've told anyone this. And his manager manager was very nice and said, uh, oh, he's too busy at the moment, but thanks for asking. I was like, that's all right. I'll check back in another time when he's less busy. And now he's, uh, (laughs) yeah, I don't think. Well, he's just such an intelligent and compassionate and quirkily funny director i mean he's made boy hunt for the wilder people and what we do in the shadows Mm. and now as a reward he gets to make a big stupid superhero film um you know good on him and it's great but i hope he gets to make some other kinds of films Mm. you know in the future and that he uses this as a sort of kickstart to to do something that's even a little bit more personal to to his kind of sensibility i'm positive he will he seems like the sort of filmmaker who will gravitate back to the smaller stories and amongst the big-budget films. Um, one last thing I will say about the film, though, in, and it's that if I have one criticism of Thor Ragnarok, it's that its biggest strength is also its biggest weakness. I feel like the comedy does undercut some of the tension. Like, the stakes aren't quite there, which is amazing given some of the changes that take place in the film, and I won't spoil what they are, but they are significant... Uh, certainly more significant than anything we've seen in any of the previous Thor films. So I'm not sure that the drama lands as much as it should, but look, that's a minor criticism in what is easily one of the year's most enjoyable films. Okay, well, on to a film that has no natural segue to Thor, Ragnarok. Uh, This is Song to Song, the eighth feature film from philosopher and auteur Terence Malick. It's set in the live music scene of Austin, Texas. It's a story about sin and redemption and intersecting love triangles. It's got Rooney Mara, Ryan Gosling, Michael Fassbender and Natalie Portman. US film critic James Hoberman is reported to have said where other movies have fans, Malick's produced Disciples. Lee, are you a disciple of Malick and in particular of the very long Song to Song? Wow, I wouldn't have uh, I wouldn't have described myself as a disciple, but I have been a fan of his later work. I've been a big defender of the the, the recent films that have been so maligned. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I got to say, this is this is where he lost me. Um, <laughs> the wheels have fallen off the wagon for me. You know, I will go with him as far as I can. But you know, I don't expect narrative from Malik. But this was too sparse. There's just too little content to justify the running time. And the deeper meanings I perhaps stretched my back trying to infer from his other films are just not present here. It's just, it's 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 absurd. These these uh, this, the sort of pat philosophizing in the the voiceovers, the terrible improvisation. You know, mm. watching actors sort of jump around. You know, they've got two modes to improvisation. They just stand there looking wistful, or they sort of imitate an animal. Like that's it, and it's just that for two and a half hours. It lost me. Yeah, I think one of the things that really bugged me about it was that it was set in the live music world in Austin, Texas, and it's got some cameos from real, you know, mm. um, amazing people like Iggy Pop and Patty Smith. Um, Smith. Val Kilmer. Yeah, and yet, you know, Rooney Mara's supposed to be some kind of musician and Ryan Gosling's supposed to be a songwriter, and neither of them ever do anything remotely musical. They mm. kind of just swirl around giggling and tickling each other and kissing and mm. providing whispery interior monologue and i don't know it just it just felt really kind of fake 
If, unlike you, I've, I've really loved some Malick stuff in the past. Tree of Life, I think, is sublime. And even mm. to The Wonder, I, I got something out of that. I think there is something in To The Wonder and his recent films, even though they have been the object of derision for a lot of people. Like, we'll probably talk more about this when somebody picks Malick for the main stage. But I think his films are not just, like, poetic or poetry, but literal poems. And I... I know that's really pretentious, but I kind of like that there's an author out there doing that. Like, I, I like that that's Malick's thing. But the difference is, like, I think even To the Wonder was about something. It was about the blockages that we create in our lives. A character who can't love, a, another character who can't feel happiness, a priest who can't connect with his own faith. Um, he had a solid concept in that film on which to hang his hat. Uh, but that's missing here. Like, song to song feels themeless and it feels like it's grasping for something to focus on so all of its flourishes feel empty and because there's nothing undergirding them it just feels like a parody. I found this sort of judgmental too of of the women in the film and their sexuality. He's very Christian in his theology, Terence Malick. Is he? Yeah, yeah, he's he's all about sin and redemption and nature being, you know, man's place in in the face of enormous nature. Um, but it's still a beautiful film. I, I think if you, you know, had a couple of wee breaks and could walk in and out of it, it would be okay. Yeah. But there were a lot of walkouts in the screening oh, yeah, that I attended nice. at MIF this year. Same. Uh, <laughs> or oh, was it the same screening? Might have been the same Late screening. Late night. Yeah. Yeah, probably the same one. Oh, see, I'm, I don't think I'm a Malik fan. I mean, I, I'm not a disciple. Actually, I probably prefer him nailed to the cross because I think that... <laughs> How long was the Tree of Life? Was that four hours? Uh, it's still going. Oh, is uh, it? Yeah. <laughs> well, it started back in 2012, and I think it's still going. Oh, you know, what's that expression? All style over substance, and 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 yes, it, there is deeper meaning there. And I try, I've tried to tap into all that, but I think oh, I don't know. Do filmmakers get better as they age or worse? I don't know. Mm, that's a question. Oh no, better. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, better, Adam. Definitely better. Yeah, sorry, I am one of those. Yes. The best is yet to come. I'm very confident. Okay, well, the, the, the last film we're going to talk about is the latest film directed by George Clooney. It's called Suburbicon, and it comes from a script by the Coen brothers. Uh, in this film, a seemingly idyllic 1950s community is disrupted by two events. One is the arrival of an African-American family into an all-white neighborhood, and the other is the murder of one of the residents. These stories run in parallel uh, we have uh, Julianne Moore playing both the murder victim and the murder victim's twin sister. Matt Damon is the widower and Noah Jupe is their son. And he suspects that not everything is as it seems. Okay, so this film has been maligned on social media. Yes, and critic has been oh. torn apart. These types of A and B plots are generally either meant to intersect or complement each other. Uh, in most films, they would come together either narratively or thematically, and here they do both, and I think the fact that they run parallel to each other diminishes both. I, I do feel like following the Black family as the A story would have been a better choice, and it's a really poor decision to make that kind of a, a subplot, and it's sort of the fact that they're undergoing actual prejudice and, and being harassed day and night makes me think, well, why am I caring about this family over the fence who uh, mm. have fairly awful problems in comparison. So that was that was not a great choice. And they're not given any real characterisation, are they, the, the black family? No. They're just there as ciphers. Mm. 
And in a year when we've seen the sophisticated, witty and sly sort of race-related comic horror of Get Out, mm. um, this film just feels like it belongs a long time ago before we maybe... I don't know, if this film came out in the 90s, the early 90s, when the Coen brothers were kind of first coming into well, that's know, when they wrote prominence. it, apparently. Yeah, yeah, it might have made more of an impact. It might have felt fresher, but it feels like a script that's been left in the drawer for a couple of decades, and I believe yeah. that's exactly what happened. Yeah, apparently, yeah, they were, they, they've been sitting on it for ages, and they did, you know, obviously do rewrites before they shot it, but uh, not enough, I think. Yeah, what's going on with the Coen brothers? I mean, he was just saying earlier that, you know, do, do filmmakers get better as they age and I, I think well I also think is it, is it a bit like the uh, Tim Burton Johnny Depp scenario where they, they keep bringing in George Clooney into the fold and maybe George Clooney's the problem uh, <laughs> I mean brother for we're, we're for up there was it we're up there yeah. I love that yeah. way, mm. but that was way back and um, what was the last one they did in, in, it was in Roman time oh no it was oh in, yeah Hail Caesar Hail Caesar yeah. that was a stinker too it was but they but just before that they made a serious man which oh. Advise oh, people, but that was yeah. That I mean, you look back at Barton Fink and and Fargo, mm. and those such mm. fantastic films. And as you say, back in the nineties, mm. and so yeah, maybe if, if they made that back then, uh, this new one, it yeah, been, the t- it's all about the timing, isn't it? Oh, um, Inside Lewin Davis. That's a recent great Coen Brothers film. That's the one with Oscar Isaac as the folk singer. And he actually turns up in Suburbicon. I actually spent the entire film going, oh, God, Isaac is such a chameleon. I can barely recognise him. What a performance. And then Oscar Isaac turned up and I realised I'd actually been looking at the wrong guy the whole time. Ah. There's my mistake. (laughs) There is one shot that's right out of Burn After Reading. It almost looks like it's the exact same construction. So, yeah, there there have been some echoes. I wonder if maybe they cribbed from that from this original screenplay a bit when they made Burn After Reading. and yeah. I don't know. Look, I, I, I'll always see anything Clooney directs because Good Night and Good Luck has earned oh, a yes. lifetime pass. Yes, you're that's right. That's what I'm concerned. Yeah, so Burn yeah. After Seeing is yeah. what you think. <laughs> so, Adam, mm-hmm. uh, please tell us, which filmmaker have you chosen to chat with us about? Well, look, I... I get asked all the time uh, which films, which filmmakers inspire me. And, and of course, look, I love watching films, but I'm, I'm a big reader. And so um, most of my films uh, have been inspired by authors. Um, but I do love a good uh, auteur and, uh, and I, I am a bit of a Francophile. So today I've uh, picked, and this person I've actually had the honour of meeting, uh, the French director Jean-Pierre Jeunet. Fantastic. What's the? When did you meet him? Well, actually, uh, ooh, it was about 2010. Uh, after my first feature film, Mary Max, um, we were on the the world tour promoting the film, and I can't remember where I was at the time, but I got an email from a fan named Jean-Pierre to say that he'd seen my film and uh, he was very complimentary and. I wrote back saying, oh, thank you. You have the same name as that very famous French director, Jean-Pierre. <laughs> and he wrote back, I am that famous French director, Jean-Pierre. And so uh, it was a real shock to the system and I was very humbled and flattered. And then we finally met when he came to Melbourne to promote Micmacs. And so I met him at the opening night of the of that at the uh, Como. And... Um, 
he uh, coincidentally we were just about to uh, open the Mary and Max exhibition of all the puppets and sets from from our film. So he came along and had a look at that at Acme and. We got to know each other and had a few dinners and lunches and we realised uh, we had a lot in common. And, I mean, it was very difficult for me because I, I was a huge fan of, of Delicatessen. It was, I remember seeing that film so clearly at the Kino in, in the late 80s, I think. And uh, But also I'd seen his uh, couple of his shorts at uh, various, uh, I think Miff I'd seen some of his shorts. So, so I was a big fan already, but then to... For him to be a fan of mine, it was all, you know, it was this big love fest, you know. That's fantastic. So what what was the film that made you a fan? Well, it was a little short called Things I Like, Things I Don't Like, uh, all in French. I, I don't speak French, so um, excuse me, but I don't know what the French title is. But um, Black and White, about seven minutes, I think it was made in 89. Uh, and again, I think it was Miff where I saw it. And just a very simple film. It really struck a chord with me because I love films that are not really plot driven and 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 this was sort of just a random collection of things that he, the narrator, uh, liked and disliked. And uh, it was the first time I'd ever seen the French actor Dominique Pignon, mm. if that's the correct pronunciation. Uh, and he's such a clown-like sort of character and actor. And, and my father uh, was an acrobatic clown. So clowning is something that's been uh, in my life. And uh, so I always love visual humour. As I said, I love anything French. And so this sort of ticked all the boxes. And and this short, I think, for Jean-Pierre was a really... Um, for him, it was incredibly successful and sort of launched his career. And I think uh, Delicatessen was the, the film he made next, his first feature. So, yeah, so that was the, the first of his I saw and I was sort of addicted ever since. I still can't quite articulate what it is about Jean-Pierre's films that I like the most. I mean, there's a, certainly a quirkiness. Um, you know, there's a darkness there as well. Um, he he loves the past and so all his sets are always beautifully um, constructed and... and and very uh, cluttered. He, he, his cinematography is very um, lush and, and saturated. He loves, we were talking earlier about, he loves saturated green in his films. So there's a sensibility there that, that really resonates with me, yeah. Mm. Are, you, are you a fan, Rochelle? Have you been... Look, I was just um, reminiscing while you were talking, Adam, and I think it was like 91 when Delicatessen came out, mm. and I saw it at the at the Astor and I was this, you know, girl from the suburbs who'd probably never seen a French film in my life and I saw Delicatessen and and it just blew my mind. It was just so inventive and original and kind of I I didn't know where this was or when this was but there were just so many little jokes in the frame and it's got, had that sort of sepia wash to the, to the, um, to the, you know, colour and it was just, yeah, I, I really fell in love with that film. City of Lost Children, again, was was a really transporting film. Um, but Mick Max kind of left me a bit cold and Amelie was so sweet. I just had a <laughs> sugar rush and I just, yeah, it was too sweet for me. So, yeah, a bit of a mixed bag for me. But mm. Adam, 
What about you? I mean, do you love all his films uniformly or do you have well, special this is, favorites? This is, this is the trouble. Once you meet one of your, you know, not, I wouldn't say hero, um, but and then, and then they make a bad film. And um, for me... Uh, it's not like I, I dislike his films, but again, it's a bit like the Coen brothers were saying, which the early films seem to be the strongest. And I'm probably going to be one of those filmmakers my, myself. It's all downhill from here. But um, there's something that w- filmmakers get so right in their first feature, and it's very hard to then retain that onwards. So I think also it, it, we, we can't... Uh, dismissed the fact that Jean-Pierre co-directed some of mm. these with uh, Caro and and uh, was re-watching some of his um, his shorts and music videos and he certainly brought a, an incredible rich aesthetic to the collaboration as well but mm. but then you know the films that Jean-Pierre has directed by himself have been as strong I mean I think but for him too, when he after he made Amelie, which which became I think one of the biggest grossing mm. French films outside France. I hope I'm right. Um, that sounds right. It yeah. really uh, he he then was catapulted, and and I mean before that uh, he'd made Aliens Four, was it? Yeah, Resurrection. Resurrection. And, and having spoken to him about that, you know, he he really it wasn't a happy experience. Oh, really? You know, he actually uh, was only learning English at the time, and so. And I, I don't know if he would regret making that film, but he certainly at least... I think Hollywood left a bad taste in his mouth, so he, he went back to France and then made Amelie, which, you know, again, a uh, very you know, sweet, saccharine film, but obviously audiences around the world loved it. And I was, I was looking at IMDb this morning, and it's it's still... I think it's number 80 on the top 250 films of all time, so it's obviously a lot of people's favourite. Mm. Um, but for me, no, Delicatessen was certainly the one that, that I, I will have on my top ten, you know. Um, Mick Max was all right. I haven't seen T.S. Spivet because it was a few years ago and that didn't get a wide release. Um, I haven't spoken to him in a while. I'd love to know what he's doing next. Um, he He's one of those filmmakers too who uh, gets asked to direct a lot of TV commercials and actually, a few years ago, uh, he came back to Australia to direct a whole bunch of Commonwealth Bank ads. I don't know if you ever remember those. Oh, There's a natural fit. Well, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he got well paid, but they, they certainly had an Amelie uh, sensibility to them um, and a quirkiness. Uh, well, if I can find them, we'll put them on the show notes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that sounds great. I, I don't know how, but, but so he's, he's been lucky that, you know, he can traverse between the commercial world and, and making his own films and... You know, and, and an alien here and there. Uh, so, uh, you know, I just really hope he's got many more wonderful films up his sleeve. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, Mark Caro, he's a longtime collaborator. So, um, Genet was studying animation in the 70s and he met Caro in 74, and the two began making short films and TV commercials and music videos together. And their sensibilities just meshed so well. They both. They weren't identical, but there was something about their, the types of films they wanted to make and the way they saw the world that just they locked into place. And they had that style that uh, evoked uh, cinema de look and German expressionism. And that you know that um, sort of steampunk goth, mm. goth aesthetic from the 90s, the William Gibson, Terry Gilliam, Alex Proyas, Wachowski's thing? They really helped establish that, I think. I think their films played a big part 
in laying that groundwork. Um, oh, absolutely. I think they, you know, they were a little bit ahead of the curve, and that and that whole steampunk punk look, which is now everywhere. Yeah, it really they formed that back then, and you know, and also talking about linking back to we're talking about Tim Burton and and Johnny Depp and and the Coen Brothers with um, with uh, Mr. Clooney. Well, it's like they all have. They all need a muse, and this. So I think for Jean Pierre, it's um, Dominic Pignon. I'm just yeah. looking. He's, he's sort of in about six of the films, and so he's in all of them, isn't he? he, he well, even in he was even in Alien. I yeah, think yeah. He was in the wheelchair. I can't remember. Yeah. I have to go rewatch that. But uh, yeah, look, I think I think that just so many elements of their films the fr- the frenchness the 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 saturated colors the harking back to the past but you know especially films like city of lost children which is a sort of when was when is that world in the future in the past but mm. um you know you can really see that their imaginations have been allowed to be uh let loose and they've been encouraged to take their script writing wherever they want and Maybe that's what you know why the earlier films are better because they had more creative freedom back then, and now I don't know. I mean, he well, I think last year directed um, a remake of Casanova. I haven't seen mm, that. Yes, it was. Oh, I think it was meant to be a pilot for Amazon, and I watched it, and it was. It probably feels like the least Junet mm. film you know ever made. But of course, he's trying to establish something that can be replicated on a weekly basis. Should the show get picked up but it was still you know i, I liked it I did it have it. a did it have a genie could you tell it was him I, directing i don't think i would have picked it if i didn't know right, right. Uh, i don't think i would have known that it was him for sure yeah, but, uh, yeah. but it's the only thing and and you know fair enough it's tv but it's the only time where he hasn't i haven't felt his uh style absolutely infused in the dna of something he's made the other two, thing too, I was just looking at some of the the big Hollywood actors. Apart from uh, Sigourney in Aliens, he he also worked with Jodie Foster on a very long engagement, mm. which I haven't seen for many years. And I remember that a very long engagement was a very long film as mm. well, from mm. memory. Uh, of course, Audrey Tattoo, is, she was in that. Yeah. And she was Emily. So and Marion Cotillard is in that. Oh, is she? Yeah, and it was, and I I didn't know who she was back when I. Uh, first watched it so when I rewatched it it was a surprise to see her there and it's interesting because uh, they're sort of running parallel uh, Tattoos Matilda is trying to find uh, out what happened to her her uh, fiance uh, whereas Marion Cotillard is in the background taking revenge on everyone who oh. screwed over her fiance and so you sort of see these running in parallel, and then they meet, and it's uh, and that meeting is probably the most French moment since Tatois with Jean Renault and Gerard Depardieu. It's like <laughs> the most French actors you can get in a scene together. Uh, and she even says, you know, because they're so, I don't know. Uh, I think I think Cotillard started getting a lot of the roles that we were used to seeing Tattoo have, and mm. so th- there's even a line at which she said, "We're very similar, you and I." And I was like, <laughs> screenshotting that. That is de- <laughs> that's going to pay off. So yeah, he, th- those those first two films, you know, so imaginative. And City of Lost Children was the one that they wrote first, but it was so expensive they had to make Delicatessen first to show that they could right. handle a feature. I didn't know that. Then they got the budget for City of Lost Children, made that. That is a stone cold classic. I always used to think it was perfect, and I rewatched it, and it was just like, this is even better than I remembered it. I mm. so impressed with it. Every, every aspect of it is is amazing. And, and they sort of parted ways around Alien Resurrection, which they were originally, I think, th- there's actually very little information about Mark Caro out there. He's a real enigma, which is not easy in the age of the internet. But uh, from what I can understand, 
there was uh, an approach made to the both of them to direct Alien Resurrection. Caro was like, I don't want to work for a big studio with their interference and all that. And Janae was like, well, I, I want to try and make a big budget film and see what that's like. And Caro actually stuck around and did some design work for him. So it wasn't like an acrimonious split as far as I can tell. It was just, we've got different interests. Our paths are going to diverge. Uh, and on that film in particular, I think Caro had the right instincts, you know. Mm. Uh, as you say, he didn't have a great time on that. But Caro actually continued making films, not as many. He made mostly a lot of short films. And when you sort of look at the work that they made independent from one another, I think Caro is is the more surrealist of the two. There is imagery in there which is sort of... I think he pushes the darker aspects a bit more. It's You know, it's... It, it can be a trap to ascribe artists with, you know, what we think mm. that they're bringing to the table when, uh, I don't know why, but it makes me think of uh, uh, Ben Elton and uh, talking about writing Blackadder with Richard Curtis and said that uh, ev- everyone thinks uh, I'm doing all the all the fart jokes where instead I'm trying to write all the history jokes to impress Richard and he's trying to write all the fart jokes to impress me. <laughs> uh, but um, even so, like looking at Caro's solo work, it's really interesting to see what he was up to he was experimenting with computer animation at some nascent stages the 90s and 80, 80s and 90s uh and then he made he's only made one feature film to mm. date dante 01 in 2008 uh it has a bit of the alien resurrection about it it's set in a psychiatric space station in which prisoners who have committed severe crimes volunteer to be experimented on uh, the scientists clash over ethics, prisoners are dissected and manipulated, they not unexpectedly revolt and everyone starts dying in explosions of blood and gore and, if we're being honest, some pretty bad CGI. The budget was small to begin with, I believe it got halved by the producers, and it's difficult to watch someone as talented as Caro be subjected to what looks like a lot of the things he feared would happen if he directed Alien Resurrection. That was a tough one. And actually, yeah. I had to watch it without subtitles, so oh. I got very lost very right. quickly. But, you, you know, the aesthetic was certainly there, you know. I mean, it is, it, it is, you, we've got to be re- really careful. It is hard to presume uh, who brings what to the table. Mm. And, it's, you know, there's so many of these team, famous teams. I was just thinking of Ricky Gervais and Steve Merchant, you know, and have their productions been better since they sort of separated i don't know i mean i remember jean-pierre saying that after micmacs he the thing he realized or not not the mistake he'd made with micmacs but but he wanted to go back to telling stories that had heart i remember Mm. him saying that very clearly and and his next film was uh tears spivet which Mm. i haven't seen but i did read the screenplay he sent me the screenplay to read and and it certainly had heart, and it's a you know football by this little boy, and mm. uh, based on a, a, um, a novel. And I mean, dying to see it, I still haven't had access to it. But um, you know, I think that's what perhaps is what the essence of what John Pierre's uh, all his pieces are about um, are heartwarming, and it may be at times a little bit too heartwarming and a bit a bit saccharine, but. Uh, so, yeah, look, I really hope whatever he's doing next, I hope he does do something soon. I'm sure, yeah, you know, I'm sure. He's got he a be. huge fan base out there, you know. Spivet's quite interesting. Like, I think Micmacs and Spivet both are kind of like kids' films for adults. Mm. Uh, and in Spivet, I was even watching that going, like, who, who is this for? Because it's a, it's a kids' film with a kid in the lead, and there's a lot of swearing throughout. Like, 
there is an adult calls a kid a motherfucker at one point you know that's a i'm kind of amazed he got away with that and it's an english language film too mm-hmm. so it's not like hey in france we do that all the time so i was uh i was slightly confused by that one but i did enjoy them i i think i think they're good films i i have to admit I am a massive Emily fan. Are you really? I'm I was dying to know if you were or not because it's one of those films that really divided people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's like I, I get the saccharine sweetness criticism, but I think there is a darkness underpinning it where it's a character who is trying to create a world of, of sweetness amongst people who don't necessarily act mm. that way. And I, I really love it. I think it's, 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 a, it's a gorgeous film, but it rewatching it I, I started thinking that there was this uh, turn of the century uh thing we had with films like high fidelity and fight club and amelie which are almost defining films of their generation partly because they're so unabashed in describing their worldviews. they have the main character look down the barrel of the camera and say this is what i think of the world this is how it should be this is how it is this is what i want to do and it, it, they almost felt like manifestos, like we were getting yeah. into this new postmodern thing. And because they're so direct in what they're telling us, the differences between them are so clear. So I think it, uh, it, it sort of fits with that, that over in a way that I hadn't, hadn't thought of before. Um, but he, he does actually, I mean, he, he cops to the fantasy aspect of Amelie. I listened to the commentary track. And he said, uh, he was talking about Paris, and he says, uh, this film is a lie, it's a, big ch- it's a big cheat, we have lots of dog shit on the streets. So he's, <laughs> kind of, he's completely open about presenting a, a complete fantasy version of Paris, the idealized. Although I think, I'm pretty sure the French tur- Tourism Bureau loves that film because it just mm. makes Paris look so you know, romantic. Oh, the, the cafe he shot in is, is near his house, and they had a film crew in there once and didn't like it. And uh, were really resistant. He spent months trying to convince them to let let him shoot in there. And now they love it because they've had so much traffic. <laughs> Everyone wants to go to the Amelie Cafe. So uh, th- there was this aesthetic he was in with Amelie and a very long engagement, which were these sort of shaggy dog narratives where I think Amelie was about Tattoo playing a character who wanted to... Uh, create mysteries for people, to put the fun back into life by creating mysteries that they would then have to solve. And a very long engagement is about you know her character trying to solve a big mystery. And in each film, they go off on these sort of yeah, shaggy dog diversions into stories within stories within stories, this parenthetical Russian nesting doll type narrative. And it's I, I think he does that really well. And I'd like to see him continue that mm. in his filmmaking. That's, that's the thing I really like about, I guess, the post-Jeanne Caro... Jean-Pierre Junet. Oh, I was just going to say, I was really impressed with a very long engagement. Um, I'd, I'd heard it was kind of mediocre and just very long. And, um, and then I watched it and it's, even though it's a romance, um, it's set in the trenches of the war and it really goes there. Mm. And it's just, you know, as with so many of his films, he explores the dark side of things while also making it kind of entertaining and... Um, yeah, it, it's kind of this lightness and heaviness that he manages to balance. Um, and it's a very romantic story. And he kind of, like, like the, the camera work on that film and the way he gives like a really broad scale sort of story of history and war and then a really intimate story about this woman and, you know, her lover. Mm. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's nicely handled. That always sounds like a plane from a very long engagement coming over. To... <laughs> we didn't add that in post, I'm just saying. <laughs> it, is, it is quite full on, isn't it? The violence in, 
very long engagement. Like, and I think between like the violence in what is a, a romantic film, a very long engagement is a very romantic title. It's a very romantic setting, and there's a lot of violence in that. In Spivet, there's a lot of swearing in a kids' film. Mm. I think you know he just naturally brings these incredibly dark elements into very appealing you know maybe that's a french thing mm. i don't know oh i think it is a french thing because um you mentioned the light and the dark and 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 i know with my films the americans sort of have a lot of trouble with my films because mm. people die and people are not meant to die in animated films you know so whereas and my film mary max in america i think it got an m rating but in France, they got a G, you know, it's like a very... Yeah. So, and I remember um, a French uh, interviewer uh, reminding me that without the dark, the light has no meaning. And that was a very profound mm. thing. I don't know where the, that, he'd stolen that from. But that was an interview. Of his yeah, an interview telling me <laughs> about how, what, what, what's so good great. about French cinema. And, and I think that really stuck with me. And I think Jean-Pierre's tapped into that It. He does visual comedy really well. Um, he he tackles subject matter that's you know potentially a little bit challenging for a mainstream audience, but he just gets that balance really well. And and visually, the film's very dark too. He loves these black vignettes. It's there was you know a delicatessen. It was all the, those underground people, and it was all very. Um, you know, almost claustrophobic, and there's that woman upstairs. Remember the woman upstairs who's throughout the film are trying to kill herself, mm. and she's hearing voices, so she's that got is... schizophrenia, and those, yeah. like there's a lot of stuff there that you, when you rewatch, you think, oh, actually, that's quite. That's, and it's know. a film about cannibalism. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, we kind of haven't yes. even said that, but mm. you know, that's delicatessen. It's about people mm-hmm. and a butcher. That's right. <laughs> yeah, chopping people up. Yeah. yeah. Adam, I was wondering, um, Mike Caro had um, did a lot of work with animation and puppets, mm. particularly in his earlier short films. Was that was that something that influenced you or um, inspired you in any way? Well, look, when I, I mean, as I said earlier, I, 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 the first uh, film I'd seen of Jean-Pierre's was the um, Things I Like, Things I Don't Like. And, and it wasn't until I met him that I discovered that he had had a history in in stop motion with Caro and and so these other shorts that I'd never seen, and and so I, that made a lot of sense to me why he really tapped into Mary and Max was that uh, I don't know whether he's a frustrated live action filmmaker who wants to go back to animation or, or maybe I'm a frustrated stop motion animator who wants to be a live action director, but. Um, I think he, yeah, maybe his heart, well, look, maybe that'll be his next film, stop motion, I don't know. We we have, over the years, talked about possibly working together in some capacity. I mean, to me, that's a terrifying uh, idea. Um, I I, you know, I know he, he, he can be a grumpy man and I can be a grumpy man too, so I don't know whether it would last terribly long. But um, we certainly share, as I said earlier, a lot of uh, likes and dislikes and and our sensibilities are similar. Things you like, things you don't like. Yes, exactly. And so, um, and having met him several times, you know, we do, after a while, I've forgotten, you know, how famous and, and respected he is and, and just he's just like somebody, you know, you, you meet at a film festival who shares the same sorts of likes and dislikes. So, um, you know, the shame is he, he lives in Paris and I live here in Melbourne and, and we don't get to see each other as, as of, often as we like, but we, do, we certainly email when, when we can and, um, 
you know, I'm always uh, keen to to know what's up next for him. Yeah. Mm. I think Dominic Pinon must be a big muse. I was I, I did make a note of him because he's just so he's got that great rubber faced. Uh, so that he really he makes great use of. He kind of he will contort his face like it's like it's a uh, what do you call it those those puppets like the the rubber puppets. Oh yes, yeah, the ones you stick your fingers in. Image the, to, yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. And he kind of looks like that, and he plays up to it completely. And he's in all of their films, and he, he obviously gets along with both of them because you know he was in Caro's film as well. Mm, he was in mm, Dante mm, Away. Mm. Um, he is such a great presence in all, whether he's playing a. Uh, I think he was so well cast in Emily as the unpleasant stalking ex because so many actors would be so unpleasant in that role because it's such an unpleasant character but you're kind of there's something about Pinon that really draws you in and and in City of Lost Children he's playing I think up to five roles maybe maybe That's six right. yeah, he's got the yeah. four clones and then there's the crazy guy and then maybe there's the original and he gives each clone a distinct personality you know mm. he, and they're meant to be clones and they're all kind of buffooning and clowning around and falling over themselves but they each have a personality and I just yeah I, I think he's a remarkable actor and he's so key to that Jeanne and Caro uh, style that it would be I, I couldn't imagine seeing a, a film from either of them without him in it. I think Mick Max too he, he had a lot of the uh, other actors he'd used in his other previous films I think he's got his favourites his little stable mm. of actors that he likes to reuse from time to time but I, I think too uh, Pignon is, is he, he's almost a plasticine type character and that maybe Jean-Pierre and Caro were able you know mould him into whatever sort of character they want which is probably why he appears so often but I look think too the the thing about Jean-Pierre's film both both of them is that they there is that every shot seems to be very cluttered I remember Amelie's apartment you know there's every um you know that the production design is exquisite mm. and there's so much detail and um, you know, they're, they're, they're very visual storytellers and, um, you know, maybe they put a bit too much into the visuals and they're a bit dense, but you almost like, I mean, I was halfway through, um, uh, I, don't know, I can't remember which one it was, but halfway through and realizing, oh, I haven't even got the subtitles on because it was just so visually <laughs> engaging that it didn't really matter. I was just following it all along and, um, you know, and that, certainly his his films aren't everybody's cup of tea. And, and as you said earlier, they, you know, the film like Amelie really uh, has divided people. Um, it's, I think it's one of those films too, I mean, I've probably watched it four times now. And it's one of those films I think, oh, actually, I could probably just keep watching this rest of my life. And there's other films like, well, would I, could I ever watch Blade Runner? Again and again and again, you know. So some people do. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I have. <laughs> <laughs> I think once is enough for me. I mean, I'm talking about the new Blade. Oh, the new one, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, but I don't know. Uh, acquired taste, I suppose. Yeah. I'm wondering if I should give Emily another go because so much of the reception of these films can have to do with the way they're marketed to you and mm. sold to you. And mm. I think we were told by the advertising that we were going to fall in love with this girl and yeah. it was just rammed down our throats. I don't know if it was released around Valentine's Day or something like that, mm-hmm. which is very chocolate box. And so it set you up to feel like, no, fuck it, I don't want to mm. love you. And now if I watched it, I, I might get a whole lot of other things out of it and, mm. you know, maybe see that dark side of it a little bit more and just... Um, was yeah. that haircut too? That suddenly everyone had that haircut. That <laughs> yeah, everyone was calling haircut. their daughter Emily. Oh, it became yes, one of yes. the names, like the top 
10 yeah. names of the year, baby names. Yeah. So there'd yeah. be a bunch of, what, 16-year-olds <laughs> now, today, we'd call there them Emily. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the, uh, so it was the French Rachel, the haircut that everyone had to have back mm-hmm. in 01, right. I've, I've certainly seen some people around with it now, the haircut. I don't know if it's... Uh... It's kind of like a duck's bottom, isn't it? Yeah, it's sort, sort of, of... it's sort of long at the front and... Yeah, it was cute. She was adorable. Who can yeah. who can really criticise it? Now, what's happened to Audrey Tattoo? I mean, I know she got sick of everything for a while. I remember there was some interview I read where she she didn't want to do any more films and so she's, she's gone off the radar a bit, do you know? Yeah, I haven't seen her in a lot since... Um... What was the the Tom Hanks thing? The Da Vinci Code. Oh, that's that right. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. She was the the yeah the supporting, I guess the romantic lead or whatever it was in in that film. Uh, but yeah, she hasn't been in a lot since. Which is, uh, I think she did a, a Coco Chanel film. There were two Coco Chanel films, mm. and she was in one of them. But uh, maybe Marianne Cotillard's taken over the reins. Yeah, that's what happens. Way. That 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 was the subtext of very long engagement. Because we can only have one famous French actress. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> two. Only one pixie-like, dark-haired. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They need to team up like Janae and Caro, <laughs> merge their sensibilities, make some buddy comedies. Take over the world, yeah. Yeah, I'd watch that. Well, Adam, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to have you on. No, my pleasure. I just hope Jean-Pierre's listening and he's not too upset that we've... <laughs> I hope he's not now. <laughs> if you are, Jean-Pierre, I'll speak to you soon. He's, he's heard worse, I'm sure. Oh, yes, yes. Can you tell us uh, what, what you're working on, what you're up to next? Is there... Well, speaking of uh, filmmakers who, uh, you know, whose careers might be going backwards, uh, <laughs> no, I, I'm a very optimistic person. Um, I'm writing uh, the fourth draft of my new feature claymation um, as you know animated films take many years to make particularly those in plasticine so this one if we get it financed will probably be ready by 2021 just Excellent. as trump's gotten into power for the second time <laughs> hopefully not and can i just ask um where is that oscar of yours sitting at the moment it was at acme for a while yes well look my i call oscar my little bald naked friend and uh, he because uh, you know the Oscars are nude no one ever sort of picks up and hits. it's a naked Scandalous. bald man standing there hiding his his bits with a sword I mean <laughs> it's, it's very relatable Hollywood is very <laughs> down to earth so uh, now Oscar's actually on my desk at the moment because uh, yeah he's been in Acme for many years and um, we might put him back in there soon. Uh, Acme, I think, might be doing a bit of a redevelopment. We don't know yet. So, um, yeah, yeah, he, he moves around. Yeah, he gets around. <laughs> well, tell him we said hi. <laughs> I will, I will. Thanks, Adam. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks.